How big is your theology? <laughs> There's a question. How big is your theology? That's where I want to start. What is theology? Theology is theology, right? It's, it's your understanding of God. And how big is your God? That really is the question, not about your theology, but how big is your God? This is a very important question, especially in days like today when things go wrong in life and things are not the way they ought to be. How big is your God? That's the question before us today. Just over 100 years ago, our country went through a similar pandemic. It was mentioned earlier in our Black History Spotlight, the Spanish flu pandemic. And one of our church forefathers, African-American pastor Francis Grimke, led his congregation through the doubt and through the struggle. And people were asking Reverend Grimke, why? Why has God allowed some to die and some to live? Here's what Pastor Grimke replied. He said, it is one of those inscrutable things that we cannot explain. We know the fact, and that is all. The ultimate explanation must be found in the sovereign will of God. It must be because He wills it. A hundred years ago, Pastor Grimke doesn't offer a neat and tidy American explanation for what God is doing. Instead, he gives his congregation and us a big God theology. You see, the black church has always had a big God theology. The horror of slavery, the hypocrisy of white Christianity, and the ongoing struggle for civil rights forged a radical faith among our black fathers and mothers in the faith. A big God theology, if you will. And today, we get to inherit that as a church, as a local church, as a body of believers. We get to inherit that big God theology today. And so as we move into the next chapter of Romans... This letter written to a church in, in Rome. As we move into chapter 9, we will see God begin to unfold what really is a big God theology. Romans 8 ends, if you remember last week, Roman, Romans 8 ends with a soaring description of God's love of His faithfulness to His people, that God's love cannot be stopped. It cannot be altered. There is nothing that can stand in the way of God's love. And at the end of chapter 8, if you're reading Paul's letter, the sun is shining brightly. There are no clouds in the sky. And then, all of a sudden, from the horizon, these dark clouds begin to move in. As you turn the page to Romans chapter 9 or the next page in Paul's letter because originally there weren't chapters. It was just the next page. 
disappointment, fear, doubt, sadness, and grief begin to cloud, begin to bring in this question about God that is going to be posed to us in chapter 9. Turn in your Bible to Romans 9. We're going to begin with verses 1 through 5. We're going to walk through this whole chapter this morning. So buckle up, hang tight. It's one coherent thought from beginning to end. And so we have to deal with all of it. Romans chapter 9. This is God's word. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belongs the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul begins this next page of his letter by by expressing his grief. After he's expounded the riches of God's grace and his love that has been now extended to all nations, this thought brings Paul to his knees in sorrow. Why? Because so many of his friends and his relatives and his neighbors, his kinsmen according to the flesh, his own race, his own ethnicity, They have not responded in faith to this gospel message of Christ. Even though, as he says here, they had every advantage, they had every word of truth and every promise was given to them and yet they haven't responded and Paul is left asking this horrible question, why? God, why? Why do you not save all of us? Why do you not save all of us? Maybe you've asked that question. It is one of the reasons that God called me back to Orangeburg. Because as I looked around my hometown at my neighbors and my friends who were wandering from God, as I looked at a community that in many ways has been wrecked by the fall and by broken systems and broken people, I look around and I say, where is God? God, why not Orangeburg? Why not save this place? We look around at our community and we grieve. That so many have fallen under the pattern of worldliness that brings destruction. And we see it, don't we? We see it everywhere. Literally lying in the streets, dead bodies of men shot and left for dead just days ago. In my neighborhood, down the street. And we grieve. And we ask God why? I see 
uh, white people, uh, kinsmen of my flesh, if you will, falling into idolatry of racial superiority and nationalism that promises redemption and it's full of lies. Right? And I see my black brothers and sisters, maybe your kinsmen of the flesh, right? Not mine, but yours. Falling into the idolatry of spiritism and of traditional African religions that promise redemption, that promise new life, but yet are full of lies. And we ask the question, God, why not save them all? Why not draw them all into your kingdom? What are you doing, God? Why? This is the question before us. The letter continues in verse 6. Let's follow along. The Apostle Paul writes, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, quote, about this time next year I will return, God says, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and though they had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger as it is written, quote, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We need a big God theology. It may look like God has failed. Yeah, it, uh, it, it may, right? It, it may look like God has failed, but nothing could be further from the truth. God says to us, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, the physical children of Abraham are not automatically saved. The physical children of Abraham are not automatically saved. And he gives us two examples. The first is Abraham who had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. But it was through Sarah and her son Isaac that the promised salvation would come. Not just the physical descendant, but the descendant of promise. And in case you might think, well, yeah, but Ishmael's mama was not Sarah, some other woman. So what about that? Maybe that's the reason. So he says, well, what about Isaac? Isaac had two sons, and they had the same mother. In fact, they were twins. They had the same birthday, Jacob and Esau. And yet God says, Jacob was chosen and not Esau. We need a big God theology. This is the doctrine of election. Look at verse 11 and 12 again. 
and pay attention to what God says here. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. You see, Jacob was chosen even before he was born. Before he had done anything, good or bad. So that the basis of God's choice was not in Jacob. There was nothing good in Jacob that made God choose him. Nothing in him, as Francis Grimke said, it was one of those inscrutable things that we cannot explain. Okay, it's one of those inscrutable, look that word up, it's a good word. The inscrutable thing that we cannot explain God's purpose in election, is how the Apostle Paul puts it, was to make room for mercy. God's purpose in election was to make room for His mercy. Why? Because mercy cannot depend on our worthiness or our performance. And so the only way for God to show mercy to anyone was for his election to stand, for, for God to actually, for his ways to be higher than our ways, for God to have a purpose that pre-exists you and me and anyone else in this world in order that he might show mercy. A while back, um, when I was living in Greenville, uh, my sister was helping us lead a Bible study and she was leading a Bible study with some college students up in Greenville. This was probably 10 years ago. And at their very first meeting, it was an all-girls Bible study. And at the first meeting, they were talking about the study schedule. And they were walking through, they were going to study uh, this, this interesting book of the Bible called Romans. <laughs> they were going to study Romans. And one of the young ladies who was there, uh, she got very serious all of a sudden. And she said to my sister and the other young women who were there, she said, I'm really excited about this study of Romans. I love Romans. But I think it would be best if we just skip Romans 9. Can we just... And she was serious. She was serious. Because Romans 9, this message that we've just talked about, is hard. And there are pastors who would skip over Romans 9 and they're preaching through this. Skip right over it. Why? Because big God theology that says that God has chosen who He will save before they've done good or bad is just too much. It's incomprehensible to us. I mean... Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. What's wrong with you, God? I, I, I hope you, you hear it. That I hope you hear the tension in those words. Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. This is a quote from the prophet Malachi. And we need to understand what it doesn't mean. You see, this, this phrase, 
Jacob I love, but Esau I hated borrows from a Hebrew idiom or an expression that communicates the, the magnitude of God's love. And, and, it, and it communicates the magnitude of God's love by overstating the case. Okay, That's what's happening. It's an idiomatic expression. God's love for His people here, Jacob, so far outweighs anything else that it may as well be hatred for everyone else. See, it's, it's a, an expression, it's a way of communicating God's incredible, never stopping, never giving up love for His people. Do you remember when Jesus used this expression in Luke chapter 14? Do you remember when Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own family, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Do you remember that? Do you remember feeling uncomfortable with that? What's he saying? He's saying, your love for me should be so great that everything else pales in comparison. And that's what God is saying here. God is not saying that he literally hate, hated Esau. No, that his love for Jacob, for those who would come to him in faith, is so great that it can't even be compared If you struggle to grasp this big God theology and wish that your pastor had just skipped Romans 9, you're in good company. Because look how this continues. Verse 14. (laughs) Paul writes, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul responds immediately and says, no, no way, by no means. We ask, how can God choose between two equally screwed up people? (laughs) Right? How can God choose between Jacob and Esau? Or between any two people on this earth? Doesn't that make God unjust? Doesn't that make God unfair? Paul replies, he anticipates this objection that we all have, and he says, no, no, in fact, it doesn't. Why? Because God shows no one injustice. God shows, this is important, God shows no one injustice. Remember Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, God shows no one injustice. We all deserve God's condemnation and wrath. Why? Because everyone, all of us are guilty. All of us are guilty of treason against a holy, holy, holy creator God. All of us are in open rebellion against the Creator from the moment we come into this world. We all deserve condemnation. We have all given God the finger 
and gone our own way. But God, who is not unjust, yet shows mercy to some. God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. See, we all deserve judgment, and yet God shows mercy. And if you don't get that, then you have too high an opinion of yourself. If you don't get that, then you don't understand, you don't understand who God really is. You have a small God theology. And I'll be honest with you, I do too. I do too. There's so many days where I think God owes me something. And so when the hits the fan, when stuff happens in my life and things don't go the way they're supposed to and my blood pressure goes out the roof and things aren't working the way they're supposed to, I say, what are you doing, God? You owe me something. I've been faithful. God says to us, is there injustice on God's part? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. God doesn't choose to condemn. That choice has already been made. That choice has already been made when we rejected God's rule over us. The choice to condemn is already made. What does God do? God chooses to redeem. What does God do? God chooses to show mercy and compassion to people like us who don't deserve it. People like us who think that, we, that God owes us something. God shows us mercy and compassion. And mercy, by its very definition, can never be obliged. Mercy, by its definition, can never be an obligation. Do you remember reading a story about a, a local businesswoman not far from here, who gave out 20 college scholarships, made the headlines. And people responded to that. How? Not by saying, wow, 20 college scholarships, that's going to change the lives of these students forever. No, how do we respond? How do we respond, church? What about the hundreds of kids who are equally deserving of college scholarships? Right? That's how we, rather than seeing the good and the, the mercy and the grace that's right in front of us, we, we look and, we, and we, all we can see is the whatnots. Was, was she able to give more than 20 scholarships? Yeah, probably. We shouldn't blame her for doing something good. We shouldn't blame her for showing mercy to some. And this analogy breaks down. I'll admit, it breaks down. And yet, this is just what we do to God. Rather than focusing on His decision to show mercy to undeserving we focus on what God's not doing, what God hasn't done. Rather than joining with Him in the mission that He has called us into to spread this good news to our neighbors who are dying without hope, we sit in our nice comfy homes and churches and we do nothing 
We don't engage. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's celebrate the 20. Right? Let's, let's rejoice for what God has done for his people. What we realize here with this example of Pharaoh is that those who don't come to the Lord, they don't want to anyway. Their hearts are turned against God. It says God hardens their hearts. And we read in Exodus chapter 8, verse 15, that Pharaoh, when he saw that there was a break from the plague, he hardened his heart and would not listen to what God has said. That's the human condition. We harden our hearts. Look, when the sun shines down, it melts a block of ice, but it hardens a lump of clay. The same heat, the same sun melts a block of ice, but it hardens a lump of clay. All of us deserve the penalty of sin, which is death. But God... But God is having mercy. God is showing mercy to undeserving sinners and rebels like us. And He has shown mercy. And He offers His mercy to everyone who will receive. This is big God theology. But it raises an even more serious accusation. Verse 19, you will say to me then, if this is true, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Before we move on from that, if God has determined who has mercy, then who can resist his will? It's <laughs> a good question, right? I mean, he anticipates this question because it is the question. Why does he still find fault? Here's how he answers this. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called Sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. 
And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And yet God called us out. God poured out his mercy, even though we should have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. (laughs) Right? We should have. We deserve God's instant wrath. And yet God made a way. How does God answer this legitimate question that we ask? How can you find fault with people? God says, who are you? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Reminds me of Job. This is big God theology. You cannot fit God into a tiny little box. You cannot understand fully his ways. We are his creation. We are made. We are not autonomous. We are made for his purposes. And look, Paul could go into this philosophical thing and he could say, yes, but you have free will and you have this. and you." But he doesn't do that. He doesn't give us a philosophical way out. There's no exit strategy here. He just lays it out, the facts. He doesn't try to explain away God's sovereign will and our responsibility. He just says, God is the potter, you are the clay. God has patiently endured those who are in rebellion against him so that he can bring many to glory. And not just people of one tribe, not just people of one nationality, not just the Jews, but also the Greeks. See, God is bringing many sons and daughters to glory. And we still ask, but why not all? Why not all? Why not all, God? And I hope you hear that cry from the very beginning of Paul's heart at the beginning of this passage. That question of why not all? And I don't have an answer. But I want to I offer something. And this is really from the scripture here. Does God's mercy make any sense apart from his wrath? Does God's mercy make any sense apart from his wrath? Does God's justice make any sense apart from his power? Like a diamond against a dark felt backdrop. The beauty of God's mercy is only seen in contrast to his justice. And that is heavy and that is big God theology. And that doesn't give you the warm fuzzies. But I think it's true. One pastor put it this way. He said, this is the heart of the mystery. We cannot really understand it. Somehow, if God had undeserved mercy on all or deserved condemnation on all, we would not see his glory. One way or the other. God's chosen course His sovereign will to save some and to leave others will in the end be more fit to show forth God's glory than any other scheme that we could imagine. I love what Grimke says. It is one of those inscrutable things that we cannot explain. 
We know the fact, and that is all. This is big God theology. And you know what? It makes me feel weak. It makes me feel frustrated. It makes me feel helpless. And maybe that's just exactly where God wants us to be. Verse 30. What shall we say then? (laughs) I love that. Paul's just like, okay, now what? (laughs) What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. See, Paul's kinsmen, according to the flesh, his fellow Jews, were having a really hard time accepting God's mercy to all these sinners, Gentiles, who never obeyed one law in their life. Right? And you're giving them mercy, God? What is up with that? Why would I want any part of a religion that gives out free grace to people who don't deserve it? Why would I want any part in that? I've been doing the right thing over here. I've been following your rules, God. What's up with that? And God says, it's not about your works. It's about my grace. It's about faith, believing, receiving what I've given to you, what I've prepared for you before you were even born. Before you could even do good or evil, God was preparing for you a grace. And it's not about did you do the right thing when you were 35. It's not about did you do the right thing last week or last night. It's about the mercy of God received by faith. How is that fair? It's not. (laughs) It's mercy. God isn't unjust. He's merciful. I got a little more sermon up here. I got a little more because because I have a question. So what? (laughs) Okay. So what? Just, 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 let's ask that question. So what? It all comes back to faith. Right? Faith, 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 trust, resting. This is how we receive God's mercy, through faith. Faith is how we attain righteousness, standing before God. Nothing that we've done. Faith, faith is recognizing that we love God because He first loved us. Faith is standing on the rock, not stumbling over it. Right? It's, 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 it's resting on the rock that is Jesus. And not stumbling over it because we haven't done what we think we should do. It's standing on the rock. Faith is resting in big God theology even though we don't understand it all. So the, so, so the question is, how will this big God theology change you? Okay, what do we take from this? How will it change you? And I have three, uh, three suggestions for how it might change you. The first one is this. Big God theology will lead us to deeper worship. All right? Because if your God is in a box, then he's not worthy of worship. 
If you can like fully understand him and you can tell him what to do, he is not worthy of worship. But if we believe that God is bigger than we can imagine, that God is at work even before we were in this world, if we realize that none of us deserve his mercy and that his mercy is free, that it's not a response to even our our best deeds, then it will lead us to deeper worship. Worship that acknowledges that everything good I have is from God. Everything good I have is from God, right? We might actually sing, I love you, Jesus, and mean it. Because right now, for some of us, those are just words on a screen. Because we haven't really grasped the bigness of God and the magnitude of His grace that He's poured out to us undeserving people. Clay. Grace truly becomes amazing. Did you know the author of that hymn? John Newton, before he was a pastor, he was the captain of a slave ship. I know some of you knew that. And when he looked on his life, he could only feel condemnation. Justly. And yet, in God's bigness... He poured out mercy on that man, John Newton. He poured out grace on him and he penned those words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He really got it, y'all. And we sing it and we don't get it. But the guy who wrote it, he, he got it. He got undeserved mercy and it led him to deeper worship and it will for us too if we get it if we receive it that's number one number two big god theology will make us humble it will make us humble how can we boast when we recognize that we did nothing to earn or deserve any of the good that we have in our lives how can we boast when we acknowledge that god is in control we can no longer compare ourselves to others and say well I'm better than that guy oh she's she's messed up I'm better than her see all comparisons go out the door when you realize that everything you have is from God and none of it is deserved that that, that then then you focus on the 20 right you focus on the good that God has done in your life And and you don't you don't blame God for all the things that that you actually would deserve apart from his mercy And look, this is brought home to me this week. That I can rejoice in what God has done and the good that He has. And all the good that I have in my life is because of Him. All of it. That I did not earn or deserve any of it. None of it. I believe that more deeply this week. And I think God's brought some humility to me this week in that, in this scripture. And I hope He does for you too. Big theology will lead us to deeper worship. It will lead us to deeper humility. And thirdly, big God theology will make us bold in evangelism. What do I mean by that? Well, what is evangelism? The evangel is the good news. That's the Greek word for good news, evangel. Evangelism is telling everyone that you can about the free mercy and grace of God. That's what it is. All right, And now that makes us feel guilty automatically. 
But here's what doesn't make you feel guilty automatically. When you think about the fact that God has already foreordained in his, not because of anything good in anyone, but he's already got people that are going to believe. And, and all we have to do is go out and just say, hey, you know, there's this God. I don't really know how to tell you this, but he, he loves you uh, and he wants to forgive you for all the things that have brought you shame. How does this end? He says that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you see it right there on the screen? Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And so what does that do? It moves us out and, and we can share this message of hope and of life with one another and with our neighbors who feel shame and who feel the weight of the sin and the, the darkness that is all around us. They feel the weight of that and God sends us out as his representatives and as his agents of light and we get to share it with them and preach it to ourselves when we need to hear it, which is every day. When you know that it doesn't depend on how good you say it, it doesn't doesn't depend on how articulate you are with those words of gospel hope. That God can and will change lives through that simple, clumsy, hypocritical at times truth-telling that we can give to people. God will take that and, and we should be bold in evangelism. And I'm convicted about it and I hope you are too. Because I have a tiny God. And, I need, and God is not tiny. God is not in my box. He's not in your box. He's a big God. I want to end with this, back at verse 3, all the way back at verse 3, Paul is contemplating all who are lost, all of his kinsmen who are lost, and here's what he says, he says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Today we're celebrating, celebrating Black History Month. Why are we doing that? Because we believe God puts us in communities. God puts us in families. God puts us in nations. God gives us a heart that is drawn toward people who are close to us, who have shared experiences, shared DNA. And that feeling that you have that you would rather die, you would rather be accursed than for any more of them to for any more of them to fall i would rather lord just let me go in their place right that that feeling is a gospel feeling because that is exactly what god did right that is exactly what god did in sending his own son jesus to be cursed for his kinsmen to be put in our place on the cross Jesus actually did what Paul said he wants to do. And what you and I feel, Jesus actually did it so that all who would believe in him would be saved and redeemed and forgiven and restored. That's big God theology that points back to the cross. The cross where God's justice and his mercy come together where God's justice and his mercy come together on Calvary. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your mercy. 
Father, we come to you and we thank you for this extended sermon today, Lord. We thank you for this word of truth and of difficulty. We thank you for the way that your servant Paul recognized the cry of our hearts and and the questioning that we bring to you when we don't understand your ways that are higher than our ways. God, we thank you that you have made a way at Calvary that you died. You sent your son Jesus to take the curse so that even though we would take the curse, we don't have to because you've already done it. And now that freedom that you've purchased is available to everyone who would believe. Lord, make us worshipers who believe in a big God. Lord, make us fall down before the throne of grace and to receive it fully and receive it again and again. Lord, give us humility that we would walk in the knowledge that we bring nothing that we were not given. And Lord, make us bold in sharing this good news, Lord, that your house would be filled with those who have been shown mercy, undeserved mercy. Transform our neighbors' lives. Transform neighbors who only experience the shame of this broken world. Transform them, Lord. Give them the knowledge of your love and of the dignity that it brings. And transform this community, Lord. You are big enough to do that. Lord, give us hope. Let us not grow weary in doing good. We love you, Lord. We praise you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.